Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Good morning and happy new year. I want to welcome everyone participating in today's webinar, Nonprofit State of the Union 2023 Industry Update for Tax-Exempt Organizations. My name is Amy Boland, and I'm the partner here at GRF, as well as the director of our audit department. I will be today's session moderator. We have an all-star lineup of GRF's nonprofit audit, tax, and risk experts here today as we explore the outlook for nonprofits and associations for 2023. But first of all, I would like to congratulate GRF's two newest partners, Alejandra Jensen and Susan Colliday. Alejandra has worked in public accounting for 15 years and recently welcomed a new addition to her growing family. Susan found her way to GRF at the end of 2022. She brings 30 plus years of experience in the nonprofit industry and an expertise for international clients and operations. Congratulations to you both. GRF is excited to welcome you both to the partner group. Shown here is the agenda for today's discussion. As you can see, we have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. I will now turn the presentation over to Susan. Greetings, folks. Good to be here. Glad you could join us. I'm going to take you through an accounting standards update. We've got about 10 minutes to cover a lot of material, so please forgive me if I go fast through this stuff. We're going to cover three new standards, contributed non-financial assets, leases, and current expected credit losses. And we're going in order of implementation, just in case you didn't know that. Um, and before we get started on all of that, I'm gonna pause and hand it back to Amy for a quick polling question. It'll be your first one of the day, Amy. Thank you, Susan. Um, so our first polling question, have you already implemented the standard for contributed non-financial assets? A, yes. B, no, C, unsure. Please take a moment now to answer the following poll. While the participants are submitting their answers, I will already provide you with your first CPE word. The first CPE word is asset, A-S-S-E-T. If you wanna receive CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the first CPE word is asset. Thanks, Amy. So we've got about 31% of the folks answering yes that they've already implemented. I guess those are the June 30s and the early implementers for 1231 calendar years. We had about 27% answering no and 42% unsure. So I think we can move on from there. That's about what I expected to see. So contributed non-financial assets is within topic 958. 
for nonprofit organizations and was effective with the June 30, 2022 year ends. And what this does is it increases transparency of contributed non-financial assets through enhancements in presentation and new disclosure requirements. And it's important to remember too with this new standard that the way you're determining the amount to record is not changing. It's just presentation in the financial statements and some additional disclosures. Just as a reminder, non-financial assets include things like donated food, vaccine supplies, donated rent or facilities, donated services, and also cryptocurrency. Non-financial assets do not include donated stocks because those are considered to be financial assets. So contributed non-financial assets must must be presented as a separate line item in the statement of activities, which is separate from contributions. So if you were grouping your in-kind contributions together with your cash contributions before, for financial statement purposes, you now must break it out. And then also there's some additional disclosures that you must include in your footnotes related to in-kind contributions. So summarizing the different types of in-kind and their amounts, describe the programs that benefited from those contributions, and disclose the existence of donor restrictions if there are any, describe how the fair value was determined, and also disclose whether or not the contributed non-financial assets were monetized through sale. A big example of that is when you have a first store and you have donated goods coming in and then you're selling those donated goods, so you're monetizing it. I think that's it for contributed non-financial assets, a quick overview. And now we're going to dive into leases, which is the second standard that's new this year, especially for December 31 year ends. This is your, your final extension on implementing this new standard. So effective January 1, 2022 is the implementation date. So you need to determine your net present value of your lease liability and your right of use asset as of the beginning of your calendar year. So January 1. It's a complicated new standard. There's a lot of ASUs here. I'm not going to go into a deep dive, but I'm going to try to cover it at a high level. Um, accounting for lessors is not changing significantly, so I'm going to focus on lessees, so those folks who are renting and not renting out space. Um, GRS website has a resource center for the new lease standard, which has a, a great deal of information, including a webinar that does do a deep dive on leases. So there's a, a link in the slide deck when you get there. When you get the slide deck, you can see that. And check out the webinar and get more information. So you have to be careful when you're implementing this new standard. If you have any leases with built-in renewal options and also watch out for embedded leases and technology contracts because that could trip you up a little bit. Um, it's important to decide on your accounting policies and practical expedients that you're gonna use before you implement the new standard. For, for uh, first off, pick a transition method um, you know, there's two methods. You can either you can either implement the earliest comparable period if you're presenting com comparable financial statements, or you can use the alternative modified retrospective method. I think that's the easier method um, because then you're only doing it in the current year, and your prior year is still the same as you is as it was before. Um, and then choose a discount rate, and then once you pick a rate, you don't change it. Um, so that's a nice thing, unless there's a lease modification. Then, then that's when you would change the rate. So these are important decisions to make before you do any calculations on the lease liability. There are a couple of different kinds of in, in discount rates, the implicit rate, the IBR, and the risk-free rate. 
Implicit rate is going to be difficult to determine, so the standard allows you to use the incremental borrowing rate, which is what IBR stands for. And that's something you're going to need to get from a banker, because the IBR is going to need to kind of track against what you would pay a bank to borrow on a collateralized basis over the same term, an amount equal to the total lease payments. So each lease we would have a different IBR unless the lease terms are exactly the same. Nonprofits also have the option to use a risk-free rate as a practical expedient, which is kind of nice because then you don't have to go to a banker and ask them for a rate. Um, but the one thing to note about that is if you use the risk-free rate, your lease liability might end up being a little bigger than it, than it would be if you use the IBR. So depending on your situation, it might be good to do a little research with a banker on the IBR so you can get a lower liability. Deferred rent or and lease incentive liabilities under the old standard, you will need to carry those forward, assuming they're correctly determined. Um, and there's a special reason for that. Um, I'll get that get to that in a moment. When you record your adjustment on your implementation date, we call that day one, your day one entry, that implementation date entry records the lease liability and right of use asset. And, and when you start off, they're equal. But then what you need to do is reclassify those deferred rent and lease incentive liabilities as a contra asset against the ROU, the right of use asset. So that's why that's important to keep the deferred rent and lease incentive liabilities on your books. You don't write those off. And the adjustment on day two and thereafter are going to be your periodic adjustments to record your cash payments for rent and amortize the lease liability, the contra asset for deferred rent and lease incentive and also the ROU app asset. So that's your, your day two and thereafter adjustments. So now we are on current expected credit losses, which is the third standard. And this one is required to be implemented for calendar year ends in 2023. So not quite yet, but it's a future standard that's coming at you. So you can plan to uh, implement this new standard. It, it, current expected credit, credit losses or CECL is not just for banks and for-profits. It also affects nonprofit organizations, which is why we're bringing it up. Your exchange transaction revenue that's recorded under topic 606 is going to require, if you have any receivables related to that revenue, you're going to have to record an allowance now. You're not going to be able to say, I do direct write-off or my uh, receivables are all collectible. There is going to be a requirement to record an allowance now. Um, so that's going to be new. Um, and, you know, your allowance is going to be based on your past experience plus current conditions, plus your minus and forecast of future conditions. So um, there's going to have to be an allowance. That's the bad news. All right, we're almost there, Amy. Uh, one more, one more here. Under CECL, um, credit impairment is recognized as, as an allowance for credit losses. Um, it would be used to call it an allowance for doubtful accounts. So every 606 exchange transaction will have to have an allowance. No threshold for recognition. Um, and even if you have assets with a low expected risk of loss, you have to have an allowance. So it's important to note that at the end of the day, you've got to have an allowance there. All right, Amy, we want to do a polling question next. Yes, thank you, Susan. So right. we are on to our second polling question. Question is, are you ready to implement CECL? A, yes, B, no, C, unsure. Please take a moment now to answer. 
And while the participants are submitting their answers, I will provide the second CPE word. The second CPE word is credit, C-R-E-D-I-T. If you want to receive CPE credit, please jot down these words because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the second CPE word is credit. So as you guys can see, we've got 28% that are ready to implement, 32 not ready, and 40% are unsure. And that's okay because you've got, a, you've got a little time here. It's not required until December of 2023. All right, take it away, Dick. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, and again, congratulations to Alejandra and Susan for joining us. We're really excited about that. Um, Jana Gudarzi and I are going to do the nonprofit tax update. We're going to cover the, the basically four topics here on things that are either recent or things to look out for as we as we go through 2023. We know that uh, as Jana will elaborate on a little bit more, there's been a lot of issues with e-filing and and other issues in dealing with the IRS. And so uh, we got some things that maybe hopefully will be good uh, news as we as we go forward here. We're going to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and the IRS funding component of that along with some other things, some credits, a crypto update uh, on, a, on a, a council memorandum that came out uh, recently. I'm going to do those two, and then Jana's going to talk about e-filing woes and uh, the diversion of assets. Uh, since, we, since we've got some risk uh, advisory things going on, that plays well into what we've been seeing here as well. So in looking at the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, a uh, big component, and you've heard a lot about this in the news for lots of reasons, is the IRS funding increase, $80 billion over 10 years. And that's in addition to their other funding. So it's on top of that. Um, and, and, you know, primarily it's, well, we'll talk about what it's going to go into in a second, but $80 billion, even in D.C., is a lot of money. So uh, uh, Secretary Yellen, uh, Secretary of the Treasury, in August, when the IRA was passed, has given... Uh, the IRS six months to come up with a spending plan. And that is due in the middle of next February. So we're going to see some things on um, how that all shakes out. But according to the Congressional Research Services, the funding will be used in four key areas. Um, taxpayer services, um, which includes uh, pre-filing education, advocacy, things like that. Enforcement, and this is one that's, that's uh, and I'll talk about this more in a second, has drawn a lot of excuse me, attention, because uh, um, there's been a tension on, on the political side between um, one side trying to maybe starve the IRS, as, as some people call it, and the other one's funding enforcement to close what they call, um, you know, the, the gap between what taxes should be collected and what have been collected. Uh, operation support, 25.3, uh, and that's, you know, IRS operations, you know, rent, procurement, things like that. They're kind of their internal things mostly. And then business system modernization, which is a huge thing. Um, as I was telling a client earlier this morning in a board, um, the business master file, for example, which tracks all the status of, of nonprofits is written in a language called COBOL, which um, even people of my age have trouble remembering what COBOL is. It was written in the 60s. And so modernizing their systems, which will impact taxpayer services um, is really important. So the question I have down there that I, I it was kind of rhetorical when I wrote it, uh, will Republican House uh, funding 
uh, impact the funding. Because as you know, in the uh, November elections, the Republicans gained the majority back in the House. Well, um, the House has already passed a bill to cut the 80 billion funding down to basically, um, you know, uh, 72 billion or something like that. The only thing that it doesn't cut is the is the first and the last bullet point, taxpayer services and business system modernization. So um, it's it was a largely symbolic effort because the Democrats control the Senate. So it's not going to get passed, but it's the first uh, shot across the bow, if you will, of of what the struggle will be on funding the IRS. And anybody that's dealt with the IRS knows that it's really been a challenge uh, in getting things resolved uh, on that. So the other thing in the Inflation Reduction Act on the next slide we're talking about is some credits, some clean energy tax credits. There's a large component of the IRA that includes these credits. And for the most part, it didn't really apply to nonprofits because they don't pay tax. And so a credit against tax was not really uh, helpful. But some of the changes, uh, including the first one, the clean energy tax credit, um, which involves uh, clean vehicles, tax credit, investment in renewable energy, um, those kind of things. Um, allow the credit to be either refundable or for the um, tax exempt organizations may get direct payments in lieu of certain tax credits. So the guidance is being developed right now. It's actually part of what they call the um, uh, the PGP, the, the IRS's priority guidance plan and developing guidance on this. And I think we got one component out already is um, is an important priority for the for the government uh, or for the IRS to, to issue this year. Um, most of the credits, just so you know, are available for 20 through 2032. But the impetus, you know, includes wind, solar, um, other um, other types of renewable energy. So the other thing that organizations may be able to do in lieu of um, getting a direct payment or whatever, they may be able to transfer or sell the credit. So that'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Um, the last thing, and not to get too deep into the, uh, on the on the IRA, not to get too deep into it, there's a code section 170 cap D for energy efficient commercial buildings, which allowed a deduction for designers of those buildings to de de design more energy efficient um, components to the building. And if you were state or federal or local government, um, you could allocate those credits to the, the designer. So now, other tax exempt organizations are eligible to do that. So if you're building out a building, uh, it, what it, it probably helps tax exempt organizations in two ways. One is if you allocate the credit to the designer, you may be able to negotiate and reduce your cost of building those energy efficient components. And the second thing is you may be able to, um, uh, you know, all, over the long haul, save money on your utilities. Uh, last thing real quick on crypto. Um, as we've been saying before, crypto donations are donations of property, not publicly traded securities. So even though there's crypto exchanges that have um, that have uh, values that you can go to and see what it's worth on any given day, the IRS says it's property. And if you give property over a certain amount, typically $5,000, the donor needs to have an appraisal. And the appraisal is the 8283 is attached, um, has the appraisal attached the donee organization, the charity, signs it acknowledging receipt of the described property. Um, the IRS reiterated that the appraisal um, component to that, to crypto, still applies. And what that means is you have to have a qualified appraisal. Well, there's certain rules about how you become a qualified appraiser. And to my knowledge, I don't know that there's anybody out there or any standards out there that allow that to happen. So it may be 
inhibiting the receipt of crypto directly by charities. And um, so the, the, the ILM uh, that was issued that I referenced there uh, was issued not that long ago. And one of the reasons that it may have been issued is to get Congress to act because this may require a um, to change those rules where you have readily available fair market value estimates. Um, so you wouldn't need an appraisal, probably requires a legislative um, fix, or at least the IRS thinks it does. So with that, I will turn it over to Jana to talk about our last two bullet points. Thank you, Dick. Um, as Dick mentioned in the introduction, I'm going to talk start off talking about the e-filing for self-declared organizations. So the e-file database has gotten so much better with the IRS recently, but there is one area where they still struggle. So most exempt organizations are now required to e-file their Form 990 with the IRS. And also most exempt organizations are required to file an application for exemption. However, some organizations, such as the 501c4 social welfare organizations and 501c6 professional societies and trade organizations are not required to file an application with the IRS. However, a 501c4 doesn't have to notify the IRS of its intent to operate within 60 days of forming, and they do that by filing a Form 8976, but there's no such requirement for a 501c6. And as a result, there's no record of the organization in the IRS database, and that causes the Form 990 to be rejected upon its initial filing. And the organization ends up spending more money and resources to contact the IRS to complete the filing. And if anyone knows, contacting the IRS these days is a very long process. So hopefully with that additional funding, both things will be resolved, both contacting the IRS and this e-file glitch. Many organizations may decide to file the 1024, which is the application for exemption for those organizations, and it can resolve the e-file issue. But that too can be additional costs to organizations. Now we're gonna move on to talk about a diversion of assets. So first let's start off by defining what a diversion of assets is. A diversion of assets includes theft, embezzlement, or any unauthorized use of the organization's assets and can involve any person, whether or not an officer, director, key employee, or independent contractor. So do we need to report a diversion of assets on the Form 990? As most things tax related, it depends. It must be significant. So a diversion is considered significant if the gross value of all diversions, not taking into account restitution, insurance, or similar recoveries discovered during the organization's tax year exceeds the lesser of 5% of the organization's gross receipts for its tax year or 5% of the organization's total assets as of the end of its tax year or $250,000. So for a small organization, that threshold can be pretty low. So if we do have a diversion of assets, where on the 990 do we report it? So it is reported on part four, part six, line five with a disclosure in Schedule O. So we wanna make sure our Schedule O disclosure is thoughtful in the wording, and we provide the reader with information on the steps we took to retrieve the assets and make sure it doesn't happen again. I might even suggest that maybe legal counsel reviews that to make sure we're not disclosing things we shouldn't on Schedule O since it's a public document. Um, a diversion of assets is also reported on the form year in which it was discovered rather than in the year it occurred. In addition, that's not all that we may need to report on the form 990. 
So on the next slide, you'll see that uh, if the transaction includes a disqualified person, which is anybody with significant influence over the organization, the organization will also have to check part four lines 25 A and B and complete schedule L. And it also may constitute an excess benefit transaction. So the excess benefit transaction is a, is a two-tier tax um, and it's on the disqualified person who benefits from the excess transaction who's subject to a tax of 25%. If it's not corrected within 90 days of that date of notice, a 200% excess benefit tax is imposed on the disqualified person. So now that we learned about diversion of assets, I'm gonna turn it over to Melissa, who's gonna tell us about the top risks in 2023 to organizations. All right, thank you. Thank you both. Um, yes, and thanks for going over that. Unfortunately, we are seeing an increase in fraud, and I, I do believe that's got something to do, you know, with the digital transformation that occurred during COVID. A lot of organizations digitally transformed, but yet maybe didn't um, get back to the basics within their systems and really make sure there's proper segregation of duties. People are taking advantages of those kind of loopholes, and we're seeing a lot more fraud. So please be vigilant. Um, but yes, I'm Melissa Musser, partner and director of Risk Advisory Services here at GRF, and I'm going to talk a little bit about top risks in 2023 and, and what you can do about it. Um, we're going to just kind of go over, you know, just how crazy the world is, obviously. We're going to talk a little bit about that, how to communicate with your board, um, enterprise risk management as a solution for your organization, no matter how big or small you are. And Trevor is going to, I'm going to introduce Trevor, and we're going to talk a little bit about ESG and DEI. So obviously, hey, Trevor, <laughs> obviously the world is um, crazy, right? There's just a lot going on. And, um, but you know, what's interesting is if I were to ask your board, what, what are your top three to five risks? You know, maybe I ask somebody and they say one thing and then I ask another board member, maybe they say something else. I ask management, they say something else. So what we really need to do is work on getting some consensus. And that's not always easy to do, but that's something that enterprise risk management can help with. Or at least just when you're when you're looking at your strategic plan, think of risks in terms of your strategy. What are the biggest risks that are going to impact our organization strategy? So although cyber may be a very big risk, it may not be that big to your organization. So just remember to look at risks through the lens of your own context. So uh, the new word for last year, you got, might not be so surprised, is permacrisis. So we are in a constant state of crisis. And if you're always just putting out fires, how are you really going to be able to focus on your strategy? Okay, so we've taken some time to kind of go through, you know, there's all these folks trying to get the crystal ball going, you know, what, what are going to be the top things we need to focus on. So we went and my team, we, we looked at all the different top risks, and we kind of compiled them all together and looked at it through the lens of tax exempt organizations, nonprofits and associations. And we're actually going to be issuing a white paper here within the next week or two. So we will be emailing you all with this. But here are some of the top themes that we were able to gather from the different crystal balls that out there, talent management, right? And that's probably no surprise. Um, and also when you think of risks, think of the inverse, the opportunity. So if you're looking at your strategic plan, 
is talent management part of that? Because it really should be. Because with every risk, there's an opportunity, an opportunity to be the place that folks want to come work at, right? So there's an opportunity there. Obviously, the recession and the cost squeeze is going to be happening. You're going to feel it in any kind of supply chain issues, you know, taking a, a tighter look at maybe your expenses. So that's going to be a really big theme. And like I talked about earlier and how the tax folks are helping you and just because not only is it bad enough that, you know, a fraud can happen at your organization, but then you got to report it publicly. Right. And we got to figure out how to do that. So the digital transformation that's taken place and that's going to continue to happen rapidly, we're all going to be rapidly changing. And these changes are happening throughout the year. So we need to every time you have some kind of change within your infrastructure, you need to do some sort of cybersecurity assessment and a fraud assessment because we're, we're really leaving the door open for some, some frauds and some cyber events to, to happen. So I strongly encourage you to have some sort of cyber program also a fraud program in place. You may have had one. Um, maybe you're not looking at it as often. Sometimes I saw organizations do it every three years. You're going to need to do it every year. And you're going to need to do it every time something within your organization changes, some kind of system change. So please, please take a really close look at that. And, and we really need to get back to the basics. Segregation of duties within the system, user access controls, you know, good cyber hygiene. It's really actually not that complicated. Um, we just need to get back to the basics. So happy to help you guys with that. I meant to say in the beginning, I wish I could shake all your hands. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or email me. I obviously, as you can, hopefully you can tell, I love this stuff and I really want to be able to help. So feel free to reach out. Um, lastly, um, what we've been gathering is, you know, as we're in a state of perma crisis, you know, and that's not going to change. So the organization's culture needs to change to be better able to communicate and manage and escalate risks and then maybe even seize those opportunities that could be presenting themselves. So really working to better have risk management within an organization. All right, so I wanted to point this out. Um, I'm also the president of the DC chapter of the Institute of Internal Auditors. I love the Institute of Internal Auditors. And they have this thing called um, the three lines of defense. Well, in 2020, they revamped it. And now it's just the three lines, right? Um, because we're on offense now, right? And there's so much stuff I like to talk about this and the theory of this. And, and I don't know if you're familiar with enterprise risk management, both those frameworks were updated in 2018, both COSO and the ISO ERM, but basically it was to say, you know, when you're doing risk management, if you're not, if, if strategy is not at the center, you're doing it wrong, right? And then, and then the IIA came out with this kind of new model where you'll see in the old model, and I know it might be hard to see, but you'll notice that risk management is like the second line and it's its own category. And in this new version, it's it's kind of commingled with management. And, and one of the takeaways I take there is we like to call it ERM. Everyone's a risk manager. And so sometimes you'll you'll talk with folks and they'll say, oh, well, I don't have time for risk management. That's someone else's responsibility. No, it's not. And this is where we talk about changing the culture and having folks understand that they do need to manage risk. They need to understand the top risks of the organization and how do they escalate risks when they see it? Because just like with fraud, as we know, whistleblowers are sometimes the number one way things get identified. You'll also notice the arrows going back and forth with the governing body. We really need to improve how we communicate to the board. Um, it is the board's responsibility for risk oversight. So are we communicating what the organization's top risks are? What is our methodology for determining what, what's our top three risks? How have we come to that consensus and are we talking to the board? And let's just say I went back and looked at your minutes of your board, or maybe it's your audit committee. Would I see a sufficient discussion 
of risks at the board level? Well, hopefully I will. And if not, that's something that we could be working on this year. So it looks like we have come to our third polling question. Our top risks, a regular agenda item at board meetings, A yes, B no, C unsure. Please take a moment now to answer. While the participants are submitting their answers, I will provide the third CPE word. The third CPE word is tax, T-A-X. If you wanna receive CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the third CPE word is tax. Okay, it looks like 42% are yes and about 38% are no. So you guys are kind of split down the middle, so that's all right. And for anybody that says no, we're gonna we're gonna help you um, you know, change that. That's going to be your goal for the year. So let's see, um, going to the next slide. All right. So why isn't it being discussed, right? Well, you may have a dysfunctional board. You might not be alone there. Um, they may have a reluctance to discuss strategy or risk or both. Um, or maybe the composition isn't correct. Maybe they don't feel comfortable talking about cyber risks or, you know, and, you know, we talk about composition, you know, it may not be diverse enough of a board. Maybe talent management's an issue or DEI is an issue and, and people don't feel comfortable. Well, um, it is still our responsibility to bring forth those risks to the board. So whether you're on the board, please, you know, let's try to make it agenda to ask management to be presenting that. If you're management, you know, go out of your way and try to get this on the agenda. And I think really we should be talking about strategy at the board level, why not just have it be part of the strategy conversation? We don't need to add something else, right? We, let's just incorporate it into like what is going to keep us from achieving our <clears throat> So we don't need to make it more complicated or add it another level of complexity. Let's just ingrain it into what we're kind of already doing. All right. So another thing I want you guys to think about this is a like a survey that NC State um, did. We work with NC State actually coming up in February. We're doing another ERM workshop. I think I got a slide here to talk to you guys about this. But anyway, they did this survey and I think it's just fascinating to think about. Um, so, you know, they they were surveying, you know, like what are what are significant risks to your organizations and how many are there? You know, and so the board members said there were zero. Now, do they think there's zero because they know they have the vision and they're like, no, we're we're on track and these risks <clears throat> aren't significant. Or is, is it that they're not getting communicated the risks? I don't know. CEOs say there's 13. CFOs said there were one. And of course, chief technology officers, chief information officers said there's 17. There's a major problem with cyber. Now, when we think about <clears throat> what, is, what is significant to an organization, um, you know, and so the, the, the cybersecurity folks like, yes, this is significant to my job, but is cyber significant to the mission of the organization, um, to the actual, like their objectives. So for example, some organizations can go down for a month. Some can only go down for three days. So you really have to determine what is significant to us. And so when we rank our risks and we try to determine what our top risks are, we all are kind of using the same taxonomy and language as to what is significant to us. So that's just something important I wanted to point out. Something significant can, you know, could mean different things to different folks. The organization should come out with 
a guide as to what's significant national media coverage. How many days down can you go? You know, what are what are the different elements that we would consider significant to us? All right. So again, just wanted to remind you all um, the enterprise risk management process, um, not just the risk management, but enterprise risk management starts at strategy and your objectives. Then you go down and you identify, you know, then you assess it, like I just talked about through, you know, the likelihood and impact of something. And you really need to define what is significant to your organization so that truly significant things pop out. Then you come up with a risk response, whether you're going to monitor and what you're going to do, and then how you're going to communicate that up through the board. I strongly suggest you identify at least three to five and start to work on communicating that up with your board. So, you know, start kind of small and just figure out what your top three to five risks are for the year. And talent management is probably going to be one of them, along with cybersecurity and fraud, based on what we're kind of seeing right now. So what we want to do is create a happy marriage between strategic planning, risk management, and really focus on those, uh, you know, those risks kind of in the middle and also those opportunities. Next time you do your strategic plan, let's let's like roll ERM up into that. You need to do a SWOT analysis anyway. So why aren't we doing some kind of risk management and then monitoring it at the same time? I know that we don't have a lot of time, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's just incorporate it into our strategy session and our strategic planning. Whether you have a, a one-year strategic plan, a three-year or a five-year, let's also do ERM at the same time and start thinking about things differently. I like to call it working smarter, not harder. All right. So now we're going to talk about ESG. So, um, you know, we thank you for those who filled out the survey. We had gotten some questions on ESG. So I really wanted to make sure we talked about that because believe it or not, you're already doing something about this. And, you know, your stakeholders might be asking you to do more. So let's let's talk about it. So there's environmental, social, and governance. And going to the next slide, we're going to talk, what is the environmental part? That's probably what you're going to be hearing a lot about in the news. Um, the next slide, please. Okay, great. So um, environmental is what you're probably hearing about. A lot of you know public companies needing to work on disclosures, carbon emissions, waste management. You're going to be seeing a lot about this. Um, and also, you know, I want you to think: yes, this is a risk, but then there's also opportunities. A lot of folks started working from home. That may have improved your organizational environmental footprint. So before asking people to come back, is there is there some other side to that? Is there some other benefit that we are adding? So just you know, kind of opening your mind to think of things in some different ways. So on how to disclose that and how to be open to maybe thinking a little bit differently when it comes to the environmental aspect of ESG. Now, the next slide talks about the S part of it. Um, and this part, um, you, you're, you're likely already doing to some degree. This includes, you know, your relationships with employees, customers, the community at large. Data privacy is a big one. Um, do you have a privacy policy? How are you handling folks' data, health and safety, labor management? But DEI is actually part of the S in ESG. So if you have any kind of DEI initiative, and if you don't, you should, and Trevor's going to talk to us about that, you're doing ESG. You're just doing the S part of ESG. Now, on the, on the next slide is the G part. And I've already kind of talked to you a little bit about this, but you know how the arrows need to be going both ways? Well, we need to be you know, making sure that we have proper governance, proper internal controls, and also the diversity risks within the board, making sure the board is diverse. So um, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Trevor because I know he's got a lot he wants to talk about as it relates to the DEI portion here. Thank you, Melissa. Definitely appreciate that and happy to see everyone here. 
As we move on to the diversity, equity, and inclusion aspect of this particular presentation, I do have a polling question. And as you can see here, the polling question is, have you seen your main stockholders, stakeholders, excuse me, employees, customers, investors, suppliers, communities, et cetera, place an increased focus on DEI program? Yes, no, or unsure? And as you all are filling out the, the polling question, I will give you the final CPE word. The final CPE word is diversity, D-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y. If you wanna receive CPE credit, please jot these words down because you will need them for the survey following the webinar. Again, the final CPE word is diversity. And back to you, Trevor. Thank you, Amy. Wow, great to see it. Overwhelmingly, the response is yes. Excellent, excellent. And from what I've seen as well in this particular aspect, I do agree that the stakeholders, they definitely want to see the tone at the top. They want to see your initiatives and they definitely want to see the results. You must understand the importance of each stakeholder group and build its strategy around these stakeholders and processes that are deemed most important to the organization's underlying uh, <clears throat> objectives. Diversity recognizes all the ways we are different and unique and that all our differences and uniqueness are sources of strength, contributing to new ideas and improving problem solving. Diversity characteristics include, but are not limited to, race, gender, age, national origin, self-identification, religion, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, education, marital status, language, and physical appearance. That is a mouthful. And moving on to the E, what is equity? Equity is an ongoing practice to ensure that everyone is given the resources and opportunities based on their circumstances in order for everyone to achieve a fair and equal end result. Equity takes into account people's experiences with privilege and oppression and how those factors have influenced their lives, lived, excuse me, experiences and opportunities. And last but certainly not least, definition of inclusion. Inclusion creates an environment where everyone feels welcome, respected, and valued. They are not afraid to show their true personality, talents, and aspirations, but also their insecurities, doubts, and worries. Inclusion happens when people feel like they are an insider, they experience a feeling of belonging within their organization. So what is DEI? <clears throat> One thing I just wanted to point out to you all is that DEI has evolved from a focus of compliance to really a strategic level effort with demonstrated positive aspect on your organization's performance. Companies that strive for both diversity, equity, and inclusion are achieving intended business results because they provide a competitive advantage. And those advantages include increased sales revenue, increased customer base, as as well as increased profits. Burnout and diversity tax. These two concepts are actually not new, but I just wanted to share with you because they are definitely very prevalent to those in our marginalized societies. 
Key points here I just wanted to point out that marginalized employees face the diversity tax in the workplace. And burnout is more likely for marginalized employees because of the cumulative impact of this diversity tax. And ultimately, DEI is a critical part for preventing and reducing the burnout. So what exactly is this diversity tax? People within the marginalized society are often told that they have to work twice as hard for half as much. This expression is a summary of what is referred to as a diversity tax. Microaggressions. Just wanted to point out uh, the definition of microaggressions include a couple of examples and how they impact those that are receiving these microaggressions and the impact to your organization. And microaggressions are the <clears throat> term for commonplace verbal, behavioral, or environmental slights, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative attitudes towards historically marginalized groups. And it definitely impacts a person's ability to do their job, sense of safety, and overall happiness. Some examples we have here, what's your fam where's your family from? Where were you born? This particular microaggression <clears throat> assumes that everyone that is not from the, uh, everyone from a marginalized society was not born in the United States. And that's a definite incorrect assumption to make. Wow, you were so articulate. This one typically means that you wouldn't express somebody, expect somebody from a marginalized society to be articulate. Numbers and risk. The data indicates that employees who are not carrying that emotional tax burden may become disenchanted with their organization's intolerance for diverse points of views and will subsequently leave as confirmed by 72% of the respondents surveyed. Wanted to provide some stats uh, from some claims reported by the EEOC. As you can see, these numbers are quite significant. Next, you see this slide, what do we do, where do we begin? And in my vantage point, and based upon the, the studying that I have done in this diversity, equity, and inclusion journey, I like to look at it from a, actually from an inclusive standpoint, because I believe first you have to create an a inclusive climate, an inclusive culture within your organization, and then you can work back towards the equity as well as <clears throat> your diversity. So how do you do or how do you make an inclusive climate? All leaders shape climate for better or for worse. Educate yourself, start to understand the nature of your biases, have those discussions, look for ways to immerse yourself in others' cultures, reflect on your habits, work, policies, procedures, as well as the biases that might be in all of them. Hold yourself accountable and most importantly, hold others accountable. If you see something, say something can't stress that enough. Before I turn it over, just wanted to point out one other thing that I just had some thoughts about just this morning as it pertains to equity as well as uh, diversity. And one of the things that I just wanted to point out very, very briefly is in order to create a more diverse workplace, the first thing you need to do is take a look at your company. How is it uh, composed and what is the culture? 
a good way to approach this is to compare your company's racial, ethnic, and gender makeup to that of the local community. The community can give you a target for the diverse demographics your company should try to achieve. Second thing I want to share is that you need to evaluate the executive's diversity. Look at how your how diverse the executives, managers, supervisors are within your organization. A powerful way to show just how your company values diversity is to demonstrate this diversity at all levels of hiring. Diversity at the highest levels of a company can signify to diverse candidates that your company is serious about its efforts. Next, I just want to add that you need to diversify all project teams. When selecting employees to work on certain projects, make sure you are selecting employees of different ages, races, and genders. This will prevent teams from having one central perspective rise out of similar life experiences. And lastly, with regards to this, I just want to urge you all to emphasize to your managers to provide timely, constructive feedback. Have those conversations with those that do not look like you, and don't be fear, fearful of what the response may be. You might be pleasantly surprised. And young hires are really, really looking for that timely, constructive feedback. And with that, I'd like to turn it over. Thank you, Trevor. Great job. Um, Want to continue this conversation? Uh, we do have a, a workshop coming up in February uh, with um, NC State, and so we'll be talking a lot about ERM, and it'll be more collaborative where everyone can kind of share ideas and talk. And I did want to mention, I forgot on slide 40, I did add some links on ESG disclosures. So when you get the slides, go ahead and click those links. But I did want to point out a new risk that's out there. It's called greenwashing. So you don't want to make things look better than they really are, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble. So make sure you're doing some kind of compliance around the disclosures that you would be maybe putting out there. But for now, let's get into this fireside chat I'm very excited about. So Alejandra, take us away. Thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, I have the pleasure of having Rhonda Gold, Chief Financial Officer of America's Essential Hospitals, here to discuss her views and experiences in successfully completing remote audits with GRF for the last several years. A little bit of background on Rhonda. She has been with America's Essential Hospitals since 1992. She has more than 30 years of accounting experience and is a certified public accountant. Her primary responsibilities include providing oversight and managing all finance, information technology, human resources, and operational functions of um, America's Essential Hosp Hospitals and the Institute. Welcome, Rhonda. How are you today? I'm good, Alejandra. Thank you. Wonderful. So we're just going to go ahead and dive into the questions on the next slide. Um, that'll kind of gear us into some of the hot topics around audit preparation and, and some advice as well from our perspective as the auditors and then obviously the auditees' perspectives. So Rhonda, what are some of the things that you and your team do to prepare for your audits? And if you could also provide insight into the makeup and composition of your finance department, that would be great. Sure. Um, thank you. So I do have a team member on, I think she's uh, participating in this as well. Um, I'd like to just do, give a shout out to her as well. So Jumi Suadula, she's my senior 
um, finance director. So we're partners in this. And um, we have basically, I oversee, as you said, the, um, you know, the whole kit and caboodle with the finance, IT, and um, op operations. Within the finance team, we have myself, we have Jumi, I have a, um, sorry, someone's coming in right now. I have a, um, a, uh, a manager, an accounting manager, and we have a staff accountant as well. So um, on the payroll side, we also have our senior HR director, um, and I have a payroll um, administrator, and then I have our um, kind of receptionist who helps out in some of the day-to-day -day responsibilities as well, and an IT director. So we've got um, a whole bunch of folks. And in terms of, I guess, your first question, what do we do to prepare for the audits? So first thing is that, and Alejandra, you've been on my audit um, many times in and out. So as you know, yes. I really don't like any audit comment letters or, or um, audit adjustments. So real stickler for that, which means that that kind of funnels down to making sure that we're very well prepped for the audit. Um, a, a bunch of things that we've been taking on um, really based on the presentation that we just heard is we've been focusing a lot on DEI um, and looking at our risks, um, you know, and seeing basically to Melissa's point, you know, what are our biggest risks out there, which is exactly what you mentioned. So um, we do fall within that, that grouping and we're trying to spend time focusing on those as well. Um, in terms of the audit, we also do have some audit prep in terms of the audit partner meeting with our audit and compliance committee. So we have them talk about, you know, reviewing the scope and the engagement letter. So the committee has to sign off on that. And um, the big thing for everybody is preparation, you know, whether it's remote or whether it's in-house, I almost think remote can be even a little bit more prep because you don't have that face-to-face -face interaction on a regular basis. So Sherlink, which is what you guys use as, um, you know, to gather all the audited finance, audit, all the audit work papers, that is really super helpful because um, that's something that our team meets regularly. And we do, um, Jumi will then assign it to all of us what questionnaires we need to fill out. She sends them out to everybody. Um, and then I go into Sherling um, before the audit, probably every day, if not every other day to kind of see how we are doing status-wide to make sure that we're you know, keeping up to date. And the other thing is I do ongoing analysis of where we stand compared to budget um, on a regular basis and compared to last year. So at the end of the year, we're not kind of facing these large variances without explanations. Got it. And then I'm assuming at the end of every month, especially that year in close, you're doing a thorough review of those reconciliations and those financials. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So a part of our month end close is obviously reviewing all of the general ledgers, the subsidiary general, um, general ledgers, um, you know, uh, schedules to make sure they tie it to the GL. Um, you know, payroll is our largest expense, as I'm sure in most organizations. So that mm -hmm. takes a lot of time because we do a lot of the reconciliations to the 941s, um, which is always a year end. Um, you're pulling your hair out because those become a little bit more complicated with the accruals and whatnot. But I also do regular uh, quarterly updates to the board. So at that point, I'm really pretty much capturing some big variances because if I see if something's not booked to the GL um, that I budgeted for, we're reaching out to the budget managers to make sure that we find out what could possibly be missing. Um, and that actually brings me to the next point, the budget managers of the program, super important in this process. We have to reach out to them regularly, do financial updates, make sure that um, their actuals make sense to try to capture things that perhaps were charged to their project that should not have been. And then we go ahead and try to catch them during the year. So at the end of the year, we're not really surprised by anything. Wonderful. 
Awesome. And then I, I think you've pretty much already answered number two is ensuring that your team is on track to deliver and upload that information timely and the documentation. Yeah, that is, that's, a key, that's a key deliverable. Um, the one thing that I do know is um, the coordination between the different departments of getting the information. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's very helpful to make sure that people know what their responsibilities are so that they can work on it ahead of time. You're not having this last minute, you know, fire, putting up fires to get the information ready for the audit. Yeah, and then and I, like you said, the 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 sooner that those that information gets uploaded, the better it is also on our end as the auditors, because we can uh, appropriately plan. We can get you all the samples ahead of schedule, um, so that way, once we kick off field work, we really want to hit the ground running with the test work. So yeah, which actually brings me to another another point is that we've had like years ago where we were so like you know super worried about not getting the auditors the information on time. So we sent a trial balance that was not reviewed, you know, for every, you know, it's across every T and dot every I. And that's really important is to make sure that the trial balance that we send to you all is, um, is really accurate and that that's the one you're going to be working off of because that's when you start doing your testing. And remotely, that actually becomes a little bit more important because, again, you're not having that, you know, the face-to-face -face with the auditors. So you want to make sure exactly. that that work is really done beforehand. Right. And because we don't have that face to face, I think something that has well wor worked well in the past is having those check in meetings throughout the week. We'll schedule like a Zoom call, like a kickoff call uh, at the beginning of the week just to make sure, you know, hey, I'm still working on this. So if you can focus on, you know, this section, go ahead and that's ready. So I like having those entrance conferences. Um, and then we also do like a midweek check in. Uh, quick Zoom chat, a, a, a Zoom call or a Teams call, just to really, um, you know, talk about progress. What's still, what big items may be still outstanding, or questions that we have that may be easier to answer, you know, in a conversation versus emails back and forth. And then that exit meeting at the end of the week to really see what we've accomplished and what's left outstanding. I think is also very, very helpful now in this remote environment. Yeah, and Alejandra, I think the other thing too is because I know that you guys meet with not only myself clearly, but you do meet with our president and CEO to obviously make sure that you know I'm doing things on the up and up. Right. So um, it's what I what I found again remotely is making sure that that's scheduled as soon as the audit is scheduled as well. So that meeting is on the books beforehand, so that we know that you can keep moving and that the field work is slated to be done within the time frame. So we really adhere very closely. We know it's an audit field work of one week. We work closely towards that one week. Awesome. Um, and then what systems or tools do you guys have in place that you believe are helpful in the new remote and paperless world? Yeah, this is actually a great question. So this is something that um, personally I've been preparing for forever. As you said, I've been, um, I've been the organization now 30 years. So when I think back, you know, everything was so manual. Um, things are very uh, completely different now. I was prepping for something to happen, clearly not a pandemic, but was clearly prepping to make sure that everything was cloud-based. So our team has been working on this for a number, oh my God, probably a decade, is making sure that we are prepared to turn off the lights at any given time. You know, I kind of thought it would be something wrong with the building, not a pandemic, but um, we pretty much had reached that point where when the pandemic hit, we shut down and our audit was starting the following week. So um, that was actually, I don't know if you remember that conversation, but there, there was like a very big conversation. What are we gonna do here? So over the years, um, we pretty much moved everything to the cloud. We also um, adhere to FISMA. 
which is the, um, I guess, um, Federal Information System Management Act or something where it's very important from a credit cards, if you accept credit cards, you really should be FISMA compliant. So we have a consultant that regularly does um, FISMA testing for us, and that has helped with our, um, our technological controls. So that's one component of you know, this prep. And we actually went everything to, um, to the cloud. So we're on Microsoft offices, I'm sure many of you are, which allows Teams, which allows SharePoint. And those of you not using SharePoint, as much as I really personally hate the system, um, it really does, um, it, it's very helpful because you could share documents internally. You're not creating many versions. Um, so I know the finance team, we really use it on a regular basis. Um, we also use Sage Intact. So we moved Solomon over to Sage Intact, with, which is cloud-based. Um, all of our employees complete their timesheets, which is pretty much used to um, drive all of our allocations internally because all programs are um, charged based on the percentage of staff time that people work. So timesheets is a super important component of that. So they all have ability to fill that out using Sage Intact. We use Concur for our expense reports, American Express charges. Any bill is considered our third-party um, accounts payable administrator. So we don't do any in-house checks at all. It all goes through any bill and I sign the checks, you know, via, um, you know, an electronic signature and approval process. And that has been super helpful of which all of these systems, by the way, are um, accessible by, you know, even on the phone, like if we need to get, you know, if I need to approve something, I have the technological ability to do that as well. Um, if I'm not physically at my computer, um, we have Fontiva, which is a brand new system to, to um, use as our association management system. It's brand spanking new. We just implemented it about, I don't know, two weeks ago. So we're still, you know, trying to um, work on that, but that's our accounts receivable system. We use it now for our dues invoicing, um, tracking our receipts, our payments. So um, that it gets uploaded to Intact as well. I implemented maybe two years ago, Martis, which is a cloud-based budgeting tool. Um, I researched this over the years and finally found a system that I'm super happy with. It's very uh, user-friendly. Our budget managers love it. They now all, they do all of their budgets now via Martis, no more of these Excel spreadsheets going back and forth, having footing problems, having, you know, problems getting approved. You know, there was no approval process using um, Excel. So Martis has been just fantastic. And they come up with, I feel like I'm like putting in a, um, <laughs> a plug for them because I love them so much. But I work very closely with them because um, they're really come up, coming up with a lot of enhancements, even for financial reporting. We use, as I said, SharePoint. And um, the one thing I have to admit is that sadly, we are still using Excel for our grant tracking. Um, we have a lot of um, external funders who give us grants. We're still on Excel. Jimmy and I just met yesterday. Um, there's definitely still remains problems with these Excel spreadsheets. And I have not yet found a system that can really track um, multi-year budgets for grants with rollovers and it's very complicated. So that's my next line of business is to figure out how to automate that. So I would say going cloud is just um, probably the key component of this whole process. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing. I actually get a lot of questions from clients on those budgeting tools. And I think somebody just um, was asking the name. It's called Martis, M-A-U-S, Martis. Martis, yes. Yep. Okay, wonderful. And then uh, another thing that I wanted to also piggyback on everything that you just discussed is that 
because you are on intact and you're using anybill.com and concur and all of that, um, what Rhonda and her team usually does is that they give us read-only access so we can go in, um, pull reports, pull support for you know our testing and things like that um, during audit time, which saves them time as well from having to sift through all of the information and uploading it, um, that getting us that access is, is very efficient and yeah. saves a lot of time. And the other events. thing is we use Concur, um, which Concur, I have to tell you, is a very complicated system. It's not like my Mortis, which is much easier. But with Concur, um, basically, um, the other thing that we do use it for is that we send our president and CEOs um, expense reports for further approval by our um, treasurer, a board treasurer. So I can easily, my team downloads these um, reports directly from Concur. I shoot them off to, uh, via an email to our treasurer and I've gotten good feedback that they find that very um, easy to read as well. Um, they've oftentimes members of other boards and they said that it actually makes their jobs a lot easier. Awesome, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and then during field work, how often are you communicating with um, the entire team to ensure audit progress and status? I would say pretty regularly, um, at least once, if not a couple of times during a day. Um, I also do have, um, and Alejandro, your team probably knows this, I, I do have contact with whoever the manager is on, on the project. So I'll oftentimes be in touch with the manager as well. Jumi and I have regular meetings. Um, we do, you know, talk to each other. Again, I go into SharePoint. I mean, SharePoint, uh, SureLink, sorry, SureLink to see, um, you know, what the status is, whether you guys have looked at these files or not. So I think I'm pretty much, um, you know, hands-on. I think it's hands-on deck. And, um, and then, you know, we are very much tracking the progress as the audit goes on to make sure that and the communication I have with the auditors to make sure that you're not falling behind because it's, again, very important that we stay within our budget as well. Exactly. Okay, good. And then for any new and or prospective clients, what would you be, what would your advice be as they approach audit time? <laughs> Moving to the cloud. Uh, basically making sure everything is as automated as possible, making sure your data talks to each other. So, you know, we have all of our systems communicate with each other. Everything is ultimately uploaded to our Sage Intact. So that's very important. Um, you know, use SharePoint to share the files so that you don't have 15 different versions running around. I mean, I'll be honest, we still have that problem. Uh, I'll be working on one file. My team may be working on another. So we're still trying to work out the kinks with that. But you're able to go in and see when the last time somebody made changes. So, you know, it has a versioning component to it. Um, the other thing is be realistic for when you schedule the audit field work. So if you know you're not going to be able to be 100% done, you're not confident, then don't do it. Don't schedule it. The Agreed. other thing that we do internally is that we set an internal deadline of two weeks before the audit to be 100% done so that we have like kind of like a fake deadline, so to speak, um, even though we hold ourselves accountable to it, that the audit, pretend the auditors are coming in and that everything has to be completed two weeks ahead of time so that we are moving on to the next, you know, we're moving on to the current year and we're not constantly going back to the prior year and making adjustments. I want everything to be done before that. Um, I would say the other thing that's really important is making sure um, the team members that have to know what they're working on earlier, um, you know, have the extra time to get the schedules done so that they're not surprised by any of these requests. And then make sure the, um, one thing that I've learned through the years, be really patient with the new auditors. So when you have these new staff auditors coming out that they really are not experienced, 
be patient with them. We've all been, you know, in their shoes. Uh, you know, having a daughter that's been in that, I've seen her kind of beaten up by her, um, by the clients. So I think I personally have an interest in that and making sure that we kind of teach them as, as they go along so that you want, you don't want to turn, you know, these newbies away from the um, audit field or from accounting. And I think that's just, you know, a challenge for our um, profession in general. So that's something I think is super important too. I agree. And I mirror everything on uh, the advice that you said about being realistic with the scheduling, making sure that you have everything ready and that, um, you know, you're holding yourself accountable because it, it does pay, it does, you know, set everybody else back on our side too, as well, because we have it scheduled, we have the staff available. So if you're not a hundred percent ready by that date, it just kind of sets everybody back. And then you have that issue of, Okay, we're starting the audit now. We have to stop. Then we have to pick it up again and then stop again. So it just becomes very, very inefficient and uh, you know more time consuming as well, which would drive up your audit fee. So um, again, being realistic is is very, very important. Yeah. Um. All right. Last quick question before we turn it over to um, the la the Q and A. What challenges do you see for your organization? Yeah, so just real quickly, the big thing for us is that we have two entities. So because of that, we have a lot of intercompany transactions and um, costs are shared between both entities. So we just struggle with allocating across entities and across programs, particularly with the new FASBs trying to like, you know, get fully loaded costs and do the allocations to each functional line item, expense line item. That has just been with, within our SAGE intact system. It's been a little challenging for us and then trying to get that data to talk to Marnus to make it more user-friendly. So um, we're struggling a little bit with that. We continue to work on it to tweak our allocation module because we just switched to um, the SAGE module. We used to have a third party module to do that. So um, that just continues to be a little bit more of a challenge. And we also allocate you know, time across the, all the programs. So just making sure that that system works correctly. And then lastly, is just making sure we continue to do our testing on live data with Fontiva, the new AMS system. So the work continues, but we're moving along and um, I think we're on the right path for success. I hope anyway. Yes, thank you. And, um, you know, speaking of intact, we'd have an entire um, ATS team, accounting technology systems team. So if anyone out there is, you know, looking to switch, there's a lot of positives with intact and everything that it can do, um, just let us know and, and we can definitely point you in the right direction there. All right, so I think that's it for our fireside chat. Thank you so much, Rhonda, for doing this. I am going to hand it back um, so that we can go through our Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Alejandra. Thank you, Rhonda, so much for all the information. Um, we're gonna go through and answer some of the questions that we did receive from the audience. I know some of them have been answered in the chat, so we'll try to answer some of the, the ones we received ahead of time. Uh, and then if we have time for going through some of the ones that were, were coming through the chat. Um, but one of the ones that I know have come up is, um, and I think this is a question for uh, Susan, and it talks about uh, lease accounting software and if there's any options um, that you can recommend. Definitely. Um, NetLease is a great system. GRF is a reseller for NetLease. Um, and if you're working with more than two leases, you don't want to do this in Excel. You definitely want to look into getting software. 
Great. Thanks, Susan. Um, another one that came through, and this will be a question for Melissa, uh, and it just it does ask about, you know, what does ERM look like at a small nonprofit? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, you know, I think smaller organ and you know, obviously risk management is important for any size organization. So I'm assuming your small nonprofit does a strategic plan. So I think just incorporating it into that process and however you're you're conducting that process, you don't need to have someone with the title of risk. Um, a lot of times who, you know, who kind of leads the coordination efforts really is, it, it varies from organization. I've seen CFOs are really well suited. The AICPA, CPAs um, really support, you know, ERM certification. So CPAs are very well suited um, to do um, risk management. Whoever it is, just make sure they're not slanted too much in one direction. Like a CPA might be slanted a little bit more towards maybe accounting controls. And if, and if maybe it's your uh, an insurance person, they're going to be more, you know, slanted towards insurance. And that's why we like to create risk councils where everyone gets to have some input into what the organization's top risks are. And it goes up to the board and back, but any size organization, no matter how small you are, come up with the list, communicate to your board and do it in conjunction with your strategic plan. That would be my advice. And Melissa, one just came through and I don't oh. know if you have any software suggestions. Oh, wow. So we did just so, you know, for smaller organizations, I think Excel is great. I am such a fan of simplicity, but we do have some complicated international organizations and I really want to help people, you know, be able to manage this. And so we do now offer um, a GRF white labeled software. So reach out to me and we'll be able to help you customize. And we have negotiated to make it affordable. We work with nonprofits. We understand some of the stuff out there is like 40,000 a year. And that's not what we're talking about. Those are for public companies, really complex organizations. So um, reach out to me, connect, you know, connect on um, LinkedIn, send me an email. You got my contact information here and we'll get you um set up if you'd like some kind of demo. Great. Thank you. Um, one other one I wanted to just point out, um, and this was one for Susan, and I didn't know if anyone saw it on the chat, but it was talking about uh, the, the contributed financial assets, and it was a question about donated clothing. Got it. Yeah, I did respond in the chat, but just know that um, there's thrift store industry standards that you can use, um, and they should be applicable in your geographic area. But some examples, if you want to look them up, there's a couple. AICPA has a sample uh, illustrative financial statement for Save Our Charities that has a footnote disclosure that you can look at that and how they're doing it. Salvation Army's website has a donation value guide, so you can check that out. And the IRS also has a publication, it's 561, where they provide information on how to value donated goods. So just a couple of ideas there for you. Great. Thanks, Susan. And then I think we probably have time for one last one, and this one is for Trevor. Uh, and it, it is asking about if companies should release transparency reports that report negative metrics or negative performance indicators. Trevor, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Thank you, Amy. But before I answer that question, I did see a question in the chat that I just want to address very, very quickly. And I believe the question is, why isn't merit ever included in DEI discussions? And I think, you know, merit should always be included in discussions with regards to promotions, et cetera. But I think the key here is, and this falls into the, the equity piece of it, whereas organizations should find ways to support diverse employees towards these promotions and senior positions. And the best candidates should always get the job, but everyone should be given an equal opportunity to grow into positions of leadership. 
So, Amy, if I'm not mistaken, the question was regarding transparency reports and if there's negative metrics. Yes. Um, well, absolutely, you should uh, release it, even if it's negative with regards to metrics or performance indicators. And I think companies should never be afraid of what the metrics may reveal. Uh, but allowing this to stand in the way of releasing the transparency report, I think, is a mistake. Uh, rather than backing away from uh, the transparency, see this as an opportunity to communicate the data around DEI, as well as your efforts towards it, as a meeting of the transparency demand head on. Because people, they want to see the numbers. I mean, the day of, you know, talking about it is over. They want to see the results. So, you know, I think you could also use this as an opportunity to uh, create a new narrative around what your company has learned about their DEI efforts. And there's no better time to set goals around uh, the company and uh, reimagine these efforts and support real change within your uh, organization. Great. Thanks, Trevor. With that, we would like to thank everyone for attending today's discussion. We encourage you to follow us on social media at GRFCPAs and visit our website at www.grfcpa.com for upcoming events and alerts. Thank you all again and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.